Hello, I'm Alan Stanford, and welcome to Lear in Longford. Thou art a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood, but I'll not chide thee. Let him smell his way to the Yours in the ranks of death. Oh, God, you are not worth the dust which the old wind blows in your face. What have you done? The desert needs rain, like a town needs a every acre in the high-grown field and bring him to our eyes. Like a drift in its Adultery, thou shalt not die. Die for adultery, no. Get thee glass-eyed. For as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. When time shall serve, let by the herald cry, and I'll appear again. For my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. and his daughter Tane. Brightness is all. Come on. This is the third of our four programs working our way through this most powerful and uh, disturbing play by Shakespeare. And we're doing it with the help of some students and teachers from four local schools. St. Mel's College in Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim, and what is our adopted home for the four programs, Moyne Community School. In the last program, one of the themes we discussed, we were looking at the, the story of Lear through the play and the fact that he, it was as if he were traveling down a grand staircase from being absolutely powerful to absolutely nothing. In this program, I'm going to look at the Gloucester story. Now, the Gloucester story centers not only around Gloucester himself, but rather more importantly, around his bastard son, Edmund. And if you take that same idea of Lear traveling down the long staircase, in the Gloucester plot, you see Edmund traveling up. He starts as nothing. The bastard son, no inheritance, no land, no position. He is nobody. During the course of the play, he is working himself up a similar kind of staircase to the point when he very nearly becomes king. And he's only stopped at the very last moment by his brother. So I want to look at a few of the scenes that are quite pivotal in that journey. Edmund isn't in all of them, but the effect of Edmund is. Edmund has decided that the only way he can gain position and power is by destroying the two people who stand in his way, his father and his brother. He's already got his brother under suspicion and on the run. He's convinced his father that Edgar, the brother, wants to kill him. Edgar has now 
disappeared off into the wilderness and is disguising himself as Mad Tom, the bedlam beggar. Gloucester totally believes in Edmund, totally believes everything that Edmund tells him. He's incapable of seeing things for what they are. He has to learn to see the truth. And he'll do it in the worst way imaginable. He'll lose his eyes. Only when he is blind will he actually see things for what they really are. It's one of Shakespeare's wonderful ironies within the play. Gloucester has stayed absolutely loyal to the king, but he's got a problem. The Duke of Albany is now his boss. Albany has been given basically half of the kingdom. The king is out, gone, finished. So Albany is in the position of king over Gloucester. Gloucester must stay loyal to Albany, but he also wants to stay loyal to the old king. He's got a dilemma. Cordelia, the daughter who was banished, has gone off, married the king of France, and wants to bring an army back to put her father back on the throne. Gloucester wants to stay loyal. Gloucester has to make a choice. And the choice he makes is to side with Cordelia and the king. And then he makes his big mistake. He tells his son Edmund that he has a letter from Cordelia. And he entrusts that to the keeping of Edmund, while he himself, Gloucester, goes out to help the king on the heath. What does Edmund do? Exactly what you would imagine. He betrays his father to Cornwall. And that's the first scene we're going to take a look at. And to help us in that, we have Kieran Dignan and Justin McDermott from Carrigallon Vocational School. So, Edmund comes to Cornwall with the treacherous letter. I will have my revenge ere I depart his house. How, my lord, I may be censured that nature thus gives way to loyalty. Something fears me to think of. I now perceive it was not altogether your brother's evil disposition made him seek his death, but a provoking merit set awoke by irreprovable badness in himself. How malicious is my fortune that I must repent to be just. This is the letter he spoke of, which proves him an intelligent party to the advantages of France. O oh heavens, that this treason were not, or not I the detector. Go with me to the Duchess. If the matter of this paper be certain, you have mighty business in hand. True or false, uh, made the Earl of Gloucester. And with that simple scene, Edmund has advanced himself even beyond what he could have hoped for. In one simple action, he has got himself promoted from nothing to being Earl of Gloucester. And he's done it the only way he really understands, by deceit and by betrayal. And that was Kieran Dignan as Cornwall, Justin McDermott as Edmund, and I think they deserve a round of applause. My name is Lisa Rounds, and I'm from Carrigallon Vocational School. A quote I have chosen is, If I die for it, as no less is threatened me, the king, old master, must be relieved. Although Gloucester can be viewed as a weak character, gullible and defeatist, this line highlights one outstanding positive virtue he shows throughout the play his unfailing loyalty to Lear. Not only is he prepared to aid the king who has ventured out into the storm, but he does so against the express orders of Regan and Cornwall and more interestingly on the pain of death. This is in contrast to the defeatism and death wish he expresses later on in the play when he wants to throw himself off the cliff at Dover. This contradiction in his character is interesting. My name is Fergal Titley. I'm a six-year student in Belvedere College. My favourite quote from the play King Lear is, Thou swearest thy gods in vain. 
This is a line said by Kent to King Lear. I believe it to be most significant because the essence of the play King Lear is that it is man's responsibility for our lives and not the gods. We are responsible for our own actions. Edmund is the only character who truly recognises this, but Lear and his abdication of his responsibilities is his greatest crime. If you throw an item of clothing on the ground and tell three people to divide it between them, then that item of clothing is torn apart. In a similar way, Lear throws his crown on the ground. His crown and his kingdom is then torn apart. Lear destroys his own society, not the gods. Hi, my name is Sarah Horn. I'm from Santa Sabina in Sutton. I like the character The Fool because he's the only one allowed to speak his mind to Lear because of his position. He acts as Lear's conscience and speaks the truth to Lear of his mistakes. This is a relief to the audience as we feel Lear will never discover the truth and realise his mistake of banishing Cordelia. My name is Caroline Riley and I'm from Wine Community School. My favourite quotation is, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. This statement by Cordelia shows both her strengths and weaknesses as a character. She refuses to give in to the same temptations as her sisters, but she too has her faults, although they are of a different nature. She's unable to express her true feelings for her father. There is also a contrast here between the pureness of heart and the dishonesty of words. My name is Alyssa Riley. I'm teaching in Santa Sabina in Sutton. I'd like to talk to you today about going about answering the single text question on King Lear. It is expected that you'll have studied the text in detail and will be prepared to answer questions on theme, character development and relationships, conflict and dramatic tension, and imagery and language. Therefore, it is essential that students know the story. However, remember, an examiner is looking for a response to the question, not for a retelling of the story. Bearing this in mind, I would always advise my students to spend some time on planning. I would suggest that before any attempt is made to write an essay, it is fully planned. You'll find this will help you to organise your thoughts and perhaps calm your nerves on the day. Look carefully at the question and ensure you fully understand what the examiner requires of you. Underline any keywords or phrases in the question. It is a good idea to brainstorm your response and note down any relevant quotations. Perhaps you could number the points in the order in which you intend to deal with them. It is vital that you have a clear key idea and that you outline in your introduction how this key idea will be explained in your essay. You should also reiterate this throughout your essay. As with every literature essay, reread the question after every paragraph and make sure the points you make are relevant and related to the question. Keep in mind that the examiner is looking for your engagement with the text. This planning will help students to shape their answer in accordance with the criteria for assessment, which is clarity of purpose, coherence of delivery, efficiency of language and accuracy of mechanics. This basically means delivering a response that is focused and clear with appropriate, effective language to communicate your key idea. It is not necessary for you to use language that you are unfamiliar with as long as the meaning is clear. For my students, I suggest an approach to writing their essay would be an introduction which says what you are going to do in the essay, followed by the body of the essay, and finally a summary of what you have done. This approach can be easily summed up as... Say what you are going to do, do it, and say what you have done.
For our next scene, we move on to Act 3, Scene 7, and it's unquestionably one of the cruelest scenes in the play. Gloucester not only has had his, um, his title taken away, his authority, there's more that's got to be done, because he is under the thumb of two of Shakespeare's nastiest uh, people. The characters of Cornwall and Regan are probably, they were, they're, they're, you might describe them as soulmates in cruelty. And it is a demonstration, the scene sort of demonstrates the abuse of power. Shakespeare was very conscious of this. And remember that he lived in what was a very violent time. Punishment was something that was not casual. Pun punishment was something that was calculated and deliberate. People weren't just executed, they were hung, drawn, and quartered. They were tortured to death. And that was normal and natural. So Shakespeare's audience would not have found this following scene particularly unusual. Gloucester has to learn a big lesson. He has to learn that he has never truly seen the world for what it is. And the only way that that lesson is going to be taught to him is by putting him through the most dreadful, dreadful punishment. This is a scene where interrogation is also brought to a fine art. And you'll notice in the way that the scene happens that Cornwall and Regan actually work like a, like a double act. And if anybody has watched those police dramas where you always have the Mutt and Jeff uh, of uh, one policeman asking the hard questions and the other asking the soft ones, that's exactly... Shakespeare understood that again 400 years ago. So let's take a listen to the scene and see how it develops. Come, sir, what letters had you late from France? Be simple answered, for we know the truth. And what confederacy have you with the traitors late-footed in the kingdom? To whose hands you have sent the lunatic king? Speak. You notice the way that Regan always finishes Cornwall's sentences. They're working as a complete team, and they're putting intense pressure on Gloucester. I have a letter guessingly set down, which came from one that's of a neutral heart, and not from one opposed. Cunning. And false. Where hast thou sent the king? To Dover. Wherefore to Dover? Was there not charged a peril? Wherefore to Dover? Let him answer that. I am tied to the stake, and I must stand the course. Wherefore to Dover? Because I would not see thy cruel nails pluck out his poor old eyes, nor thy fierce sister in his anointed flesh dick boorish fangs. The sea with such a storm as his bare head in hell black night endured would have bide up and quenched the still fires. Yet, poor old heart, he halt the heavens to rain. If wolves had at thy gates howled at that stern time, they should have said, Good porter, turn the key. All cruels else subscribe, but I shall see the winged inventions overtake such children. See it shall thou never. Fellows, hold the chair. Upon these eyes of thine I'll set my foot. Upon these eyes of thine I'll set my foot. And he then proceeds to remove both eyes from Gloucester's head. In the process, because winged vengeance actually does sometimes intervene, one of his own servants kills him. It's one of those wonderful twists in the play that at the moment when Cornwall is at his most powerful, has most authority, and at his most cruel, vengeance steps in and a servant kills him. At the pinnacle of his power, he's wiped away. And this is the step that will lead Edmund on one more step up the staircase. Because Regan, daughter of the king, has now no husband and is available. So in that moment where the servant steps forward and kills Cornwall, that is the moment that steps Edmund's case forward. So, for that scene, I would like to thank uh, Carl and John and Ashling, who read beautifully. Thank you. 
my name is Colette Kenny and I'm from Carrigallon Vocational School in County Leitrim. This scene was a turning point as well because Gloucester realises in this scene that um, Edgar is his son that believes in him and Edmund was the one who like was two-faced against him. So um, it's ironic because Gloucester realises his insight when his eyes have been gouged out. So um, now that he is blind, he actually has become clear to the insight of like life and the things that he has done and he's able to read characters better now. There's some great lines in this scene. One of them would be when Gloucester realises that Edgar was his proper son and he says, Oh my follies, then Edgar was abused. King gods, forgive me that and prosper him. He wants what's best for Edgar now and he realises that Edgar may not forgive him and he's not looking for forgiveness, but uh, he just wants what's best for him. My name is Ashling Riley and I'm from Carrigallon Vocational School. Because I would not see thy cruel nails pluck out his poor old eyes, nor thy fierce sister in his anointed flesh stick boorish fangs. The animal imagery that is so prevalent throughout the play is again used here. Gloucester is being interrogated by Regan as to why he has sent Lear to Dover. By now Gloucester has become wise to the treachery of both she and her sister. He has sent Lear to Dover to protect him from the viciousness of these women. The imagery he uses is violent. The sisters are portrayed as vicious and base animals, tearing out their father's eyes or ripping his flesh with their sharp fangs. Lear himself compares his daughters to ravaging animals when he compares their ungratefulness to the sharp fangs of a serpent. My name is Conor Egan. I'm a six-year student in Belvedere College. My favourite quote from the play King Lear is, I'd rather lose the battle than that sister should lose in him and me. This is a quotation from Goneril at the beginning of Act 5, Scene 1. It is set aside from the group so as they are unable to hear her. It conveys the bitter rivalry that is, exists between Regan and Goneril over the now Earl of Gloucester, Edmund. I feel that this is a significant quote as Goneril is underlining her devotion to Edmund by stating that she would not care if the battle was lost as long as she had the man she loves. It's not an easy play to direct. It's been described as a mountain that nobody particularly wants to climb. I've, I've climbed it a few times, and I've always enjoyed the journey. I don't think I've ever got it right, uh, and I hope and pray that one day I will. But each time I come to it, I find some new aspect that I think I, I make another step forward. It's one of those masterpieces that's, that's just got so much content to it that I don't think any single person or single company can ever fully encompass it. But the challenge is always exciting, and the reward is always enormous. When you direct the play, you've sort of got to make a decision. Not how am I going to direct King Lear, but which King Lear am I going to direct? So you have to select the themes that you're going to follow within it. For example, you've got to look at the two storylines and find out how much you want the two to balance against one another. I've described it always as, you know, Leah coming down a staircase, Edmund going up a staircase. You can put the emphasis in other directions and you can put the emphasis onto Gloucester himself and treat him as a, a parallel Leah, that they're both coming down a staircase. As you go through the play time and time again, you obviously take a look at things in a different, from a different angle, a different perspective. I now prefer the notion that the contrast with the, the descent of Lear into nothing is the rise of Edmund from nothing. And I think it makes a much better dramatic conflict within any staging of it. The other major problem with doing there is the staging of it. I mean, you do have that fact that you've got just about every possible set in the play from, uh, you know, big throne rooms... To, uh, to drinking halls, to a blasted heath with a, a blazing storm and thunder and lightning and all of that. 
So you've got, um, there's a kind of a logistical problem in the way you, you, you set it. And I do believe that that's why this play, I mean, we, we, one should go back to Shakespeare's stage, to Shakespeare's globe, and the notion of an empty space. This play really does take place in the mind. And so that when, when electing to direct it, one should work with the minimum encumbrance that you can give yourself. And really let the actors do the work. Hi, I'm Caroline Walsh and I'm from Santa Sabina in Sutton. I enjoyed the play King Lear. I especially like the theme of blindness that Shakespeare has used throughout. The blindness is not only physical, but also blindness to the lies and evil surrounding some of the characters. I think that this is easy for the audience to relate to, as in modern life, we still face the challenge of judging and trusting people on the impression that they give us. An example of this would be Edmund's fooling of his own father and brother. This shows that not all people have good intentions and is still true today. And here's Nolik McGreevy from Carrigallon Vocational School. She's going to give us some advice on answering a typical question on King Lear. The question I'm going to deal with relates to the quote. The experiences of Gloucester at the hands of his sons deepens and heightens our understanding of Lear's experience at the hands of his daughters. This quote deals with the relationship between the main and subplots in King Lear. Should a question arise on the parallel plots, focus on the following main points. Number one. Similarities in the character of Gloucester and Lear at the start. Their vanity, impulsiveness, lack of judgment with regard to their children. Both alienate their loyal children and trust their disloyal ones. Number two. Both have moments of revelation. Lear at Goneril's castle after she instructs him to reduce his retinue and Gloucester after his eyes have been gorged out by Cornwall and he finds out that Edmund has betrayed him. Both realise that they have done a disservice to a loyal child. Point three. Both men wander in a state of despair on the heath until both are led to the safety of Dover. Lear by his loyal subject Kent and Gloucester by his merciful son Edgar. Point four. At the end... Both men have gained clarity and insight into their own shortcomings and to the treachery of those around them. It is too late, however, and both die of heartbreak at the end. I mentioned in previous programmes a couple of words that are constantly repeated and developed through the play. The word nothing. Uh, How Lear has to become nothing. How Edmund starts from nothing. There's another word that uh, begins to develop as the play goes on, and it's the word nature, how one behaves. What is one's nature? Lear has to discover his own true nature. Gloucester has to discover his own true nature. Edmund is behaving in the way of his true nature. This theme starts to develop itself again from this point onwards in the play, once Gloucester is blind. He's thrown out. He's literally thrown out of the castle, blind, with nothing, no possible way to survive. Even his servants are afraid to help him because of what might happen to them. And by sheer chance, once he's thrown out of his castle, who's out there but this poor beggar man, Mad Tom, who happens to be his own son, Edgar, who he now knows to have been honest and regrets that he ever threw out. But it's one of those wonderful ironies in the play that at the moment when Gloucester most needs the son who loves him, he's there waiting for him in disguise. 
And Edgar keeps up that disguise because he understands that to reveal himself at this point would probably break his father's heart. We're going to get a demonstration of the true love of a son for his father, having seen the way that Edmund behaved, which was a demonstration of true hate. Is it a beggar man? Madman and beggar too. He has some reason, else he could not beg. In the last night's storm I such a fellow saw, which made me think a man a worm. My son came then into my mind, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. I have heard more since. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Now that's a very important line. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Gloucester has really reached the point of absolute despair. Everything he believed in, everything that really mattered to him, has been wiped out. His belief in the king and his position in the world, his belief in authority, his belief in justice, his belief in decency, it's all gone. And he looks upon the gods now that he once obeyed as being cruel beyond measure. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. He's reached rock bottom when it comes to a sense of self-belief or belief in the system. How should this be? Bad is a trade that must play fool to sorrow, angering itself and others. Bless thee, master. Is that the naked fellow? Aye, my lords. Then prithee, get thee away. If for my sake thou will overtake us, hence a mile or twain, in the way toward Dover, do it for ancient love. And bring some covering for this naked soul, which I'll entreat to lead me. Alack, sir, he is mad. Tis the time's plague when madmen lead the blind. And there you have another. Tis the time's plague when madmen lead the blind. Things have got so bad that that's all we're left with. Madmen leading the blind. Do as I bid thee, or rather do thy pleasure. Above the rest, be gone. I'll bring him the best peril that I have. Command what will. Sirrah, naked fellow. Poor Tom's a cold. I cannot dub it further. Come hither, fellow. And yet I must. Bless thy sweet eyes, they bleed. And at that point, Edgar, the decent loving son, looks into his father's face and sees that the eyes are gone. Bless thy sweet eyes, they bleed. He now knows, he sees his father as the ultimate victim. And he knows that only he can now help him. He has no other hope. He sees his father's despair in those lines that I mentioned, as flies to wanton boys, tis the time's plague. He sees that his father has reached the rock bottom and that he's ready to die, that he's ready to just give up. And that's exactly what Gloucester will try to do. From this point on, he'll try to die. In that scene, we had uh, Jonathan Coppinger for, as Edgar, we had uh, Cleaver Donahue as the servant, and Colin Smith read Gloucester. A little round of applause. I am James Freddy from Mine Community School, and I have chosen I Am a Man More Sinned Against Than Sinning as my favourite quote. I like this quote because of the irony. Lear is claiming here that he is the victim rather than the agent of sinful deeds, which, as we know, is opposite to the profile of him that we have built up from the start. My name is Denise Denning and I'm from Carrigallon Vocational School. The quote that I really like from King Lear is, Oh my follies, then Edgar was abused. Kind gods, forgive me that and prosper him. This is from Act 3, Scene 7. This is a poignant moment. 
a turning point for Gloucester. Ironically, he has just lost his physical eyesight, but has just gained a terrifying insight that Edgar was innocent and that he has been betrayed. This relationship between physical eyesight and personal insight is most evident in the subplot. Like Lear, Gloucester's flaw is a blindness to the true character of others, and like Lear, he makes the fatal mistake of trusting the wrong child. My name is James Doyle. I'm a student in Belvedere College, Dublin. My favourite line in King Lear is, Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Edmund says this in Act 1, Scene 2. It is addressed to his brother Edgar. It is a very direct sentence, and I think it sums up his determination and ruthlessness when he uses the word must. It is not complicated at all, and put simply, Edmund must have Edgar's land. Very early on, it sums up Edmund's role in this play. My name is Noel Donnan from St. Mel's College and I'm just here today to talk a little bit about the importance of animal imagery in the play King Lear. The animal images leave a lasting impression on the reader. Throughout the play, man is often compared to various beasts and creatures. Lear compares Goneril to a beast of prey. For example, detested kite, sea monster, serpent, vulture and wolf. Gloucester refers to Goneril as a fierce boar, tearing Lear's flesh and to Regan's cruel nails. Regan and Goneril are also called pelican daughters, feeding on their father's blood. These images emphasise their fierceness and the repulsive nature of their characters. Lear calls Oswald a mongrel, and Albany refers to Lear's daughters as tigers. In the storm scene, Lear talks of man as a bare-forked animal when he sees poor Tom. When all the trappings of civilization are gone, man is reduced to his most basic form. He is no more than a product of nature, an animal trying to survive in the natural world. It's a play that's very rich in images and imagery. I'll give you one example. He uses the notion of the wheel. Lear will talk about being bound upon a wheel of fire. Edmund, the wheel has come full circle. I am here. That notion, uh, he'll, he'll choose images throughout the play that, that just as one has the sense of the journey, that everybody seems to be on a journey. There is Lear's journey to nothing, uh, Edmund's journey to power, uh, the journey to Dover, the journey of the letters. So that, that image is constantly being repeated. He, he sort of picks these key ideas. And it's a way of, I suppose, allowing you to guide yourself through the play. But the wheel image particularly uh, satisfies me because Shakespeare tends to be one who likes to complete the circle always, to start you at a particular point and to bring you through the play to a natural conclusion that seems to, to make the circle round. So we move on to our next scene. Act four, scene six. This is a remarkable piece of writing. This is, in, in any period, in any time, the most modern piece of writing. It's almost surreal the way Shakespeare creates this scene. Gloucester wants to die. Gloucester believes that there's a poor mad beggarman leading him along the road. Gloucester says, there's a cliff near Dover. Take me to the top of it. I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a, a jewel, I'll give you money, whatever and then leave me there. And Edgar knows that Gloucester means to throw himself off. Shakespeare is remarkable. He has Edgar lead Gloucester into the middle of a field. There is no cliff. There is nothing but a flat piece of ground. And Shakespeare is going to carry out through Edgar a piece of what we today would call shock therapy. 
But instead of sticking electrodes onto his head or immersing him in a bath of cold water or any other tricks that they get up to these days, or using drugs, what he does is make him believe he throws himself off a cliff. It's a remarkable scene because it's played purely in the imagination. And it's a wonderful piece of theatre because in it, Shakespeare is making us imagine the cliff in exactly the same way that Edgar is making Gloucester imagine the cliff. And in a theatrical presentation, this always has a remarkable effect because you, the audience, will always see the cliff from the way it's being described, just as Gloucester sees it. So you're, as it were, seeing the scene from Gloucester's perspective. I was going to say through Gloucester's eyes, but of course he hasn't got any. So well, let's see the way the scene is established. Give me your hand. You are now within a foot of the extreme verge. Fall beneath the moon, but I not leap upright. Let go my hand. Here, friend, is another purse. In it a jewel. Well worth a poor man's taking. Fairies and gods, prosper it with thee. Go thou further off. Bid me farewell, and let me hear thee going. Now fare ye well, good sir. With all my heart. And so, Edgar has said, you're right on the edge of a cliff. Don't move, don't go any further. You're right on the edge. Gloucester has to believe him. He has no visual sense to confirm it. He can only trust his guide, but his guide is his son. Why do I trifle thus with his despair? He's done to cure it. Oh, you mighty gods, this world I do renounce, and in your sights shake patiently my great affliction off. If I could bear it longer and not fall to quarrel with your great opposeless wills, my snuff and loaded part of nature should burn itself out. If Edgar live, oh bless him. Now, what has he said there? My life is like the candle burnt down to the bottom wick. It's all gone. And I should let it burn itself out naturally. And he's saying to the gods, I'm sorry, I can't do it. He's in a classic state of suicidal depression. He says, I'm sorry, but I can't go on. I've got to end it now. Now, fellow, fare thee well. Gone, sir, farewell. And yet I know not how conceit may rob the treasury of life, when life itself yields to the theft. Had he been where he thought, by this had thought been passed. And at that moment, Gloucester has thrown himself off the cliff, except it doesn't exist. Edgar is concerned. Had he been where he thought, by this, this action of throwing himself forward, had thought been passed, he'd be dead. He wouldn't be able to think anymore. What Edgar doesn't know is whether he's actually survived it because the mere shock of doing it could have killed him, could give himself a heart attack. At that moment, Edgar has taken the greatest risk possible, trying to save Gloucester's life by risking it. It's a big gamble on Edgar's part. Alive or dead, thus might he pass indeed, yet he revives. What are you, sir? Away, and let me die. Hadst thou been aught but gossamer, feathers, air, so many fathom down precipitating, Thou wast shivered like an egg, but thou dost breed. Hast heavy substance, bleedest not, speaketh, art sound. Ten mass at each make not the altitude which thou hast perpendicularly fell. Thy's life a miracle, speak again. And with that, Edgar convinces him yet again. From the top of the cliff, you're going to fall down. From the bottom of the cliff, which of course doesn't exist, you've just come down from there. He's constantly feeding that image into Gloucester's head to say, you have just thrown yourself off a huge cliff and the gods have decided 
you must live. And in doing so, he gives Gloucester that hope, that determination to keep going, to carry on. In this moment, Shakespeare and Samuel Beckett almost come perfectly together. You have no choice. You must go on. The gods have decided it. You've got to accept life. And so, I'd like to thank Jonathan and Colin for reading Edgar and Gloucester. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lisa Kauke, and I'm from St. Dominic's High School, Santa Spina. I like the play a lot. However, one thing I didn't like was the character of Edgar. Edgar is too gullible. He believed Edmund's lies without questioning, and he ran away without confronting his father. I don't think that was very believable to the modern-day reader. My favourite part was when Cordelia and Lear were reunited and they were being taken to prison. Lear was so happy to have Cordelia back that he wouldn't mind being in prison. My favourite quote in the play was, we two alone will sing like birds in the cage. It just shows that Lear is so happy to have Cordelia back that he will face anything, nothing could go wrong now that he has her back again. Uh, hi, my name is Orla Griffin and I go to St Dominic's High School, Santa Sabina. I like the introduction of the play. The love test really grabs the reader's attention. The test is an attempt made by Lear to put a material value on love. The test is a charade as the daughters speak with irony. They say they cannot put their love into words, but then they do. I love you more than words can wield the matter. My name is Aaron Rusk from St. Mel's College in Longford. My favourite quote from King Lear is, Thou nature art my goddess. This is part of Edmund's great soliloquy at the start of Act 1, Scene 2. It comes just before he tricks his father, Gloucester, into believing that his legitimate son, Edgar, is plotting against him. He calls upon nature's laws as his guide instead of the laws of society or the laws of the gods. You could say he's an atheist who ridicules Gloucester's superstitious beliefs. Eben resents the social order of the world and craves the respect and recognition that is given to Gloucester's hair. This plague of custom enrages him. But in the free and unregulated natural world, Edmund's cunning and genius will reap rewards. He sets about raising himself by his own efforts, by treachery and betrayal. I think there is something very modern about Edmund here. Such a witty, energetic person without any principles would surely do well in the world of entertainment, business or politics today. Nature is a, um, a constant reference in the play. The natural order, the way things should be in, in the organization of society. Remember, Shakespeare is talking about a system of governance that came out of a feudal system. That notion that you had the king at the top, the, the, the lords, and then the knights, and then under them the peasants, and that feudal system worked as this great sort of triangle with the king at the very apex, and only above the king came gods, or the gods. And it was a natural order of authority. And it, it, it had existed from Roman times in Western Europe, that, that feudal order. But nature is also a strong word in the play in that people must follow their own nature, must discover their own nature, must behave as is natural to them. So you have characters like, like Edmund who, who makes this wonderful speech, thou nature art my goddess. He's not just talking about pretty flowers and birds and bees. He's talking about that which is the nature of us that we must follow our own nature. His nature is to desire to progress. His nature is to win. He starts from the opposite of the end of the scale from Lear. Lear starts with everything comes to nothing. Ed Edmund starts with nothing and tries to achieve everything. 
And what he is setting out, he's sort of setting out his stall at the beginning of the play by saying, I am going to follow my nature. My name is Emily Madden and I'm from Skullware, Longford. The theme of blindness in King Lear is prevalent. Shakespeare's principal means of portraying this theme is through the characters of Lear and Gloucester. Although Lear can physically see, he is blind in the sense that he lacks insight, understanding and direction. In contrast, Gloucester becomes physically blind but gains the type of vision that Lear lacks. It is evident from these two characters that clear vision is not derived solely from physical sight. Lear's vision is clouded by his lack of insight. Since he cannot see into other people's characters, he can never identify them for who they truly are. He tells Kent he never wants to see him again, out of my sight, but he could never really see him for who he was in the first place. During the play, we see that Lear's vision is so superficial that he is easily duped by the physical garments and simple disguise that Kent wears. He only learns of Kent's noble and honest character prior to his death. It was obvious Lear could only see what was on the surface. This is clear when he fully believes his daughters joined their insincere declarations of love for him. Lear depicts Shakespeare's theme of blindness by demonstrating that physical sight does not guarantee clear sight. Gloucester portrays this theme by attaining clear vision, despite his total lack of physical sight. Prior to the loss of his eyes, Gloucester's vision was much like Lear's. He could not see what was truly going on around him. Instead, he could only see what was presented to him on the surface. As a result of Gloucester's blindness, he ends up banishing his loyal son and making the deceitful one his heir. Ironically, Gloucester learns to see clearly after he loses his physical sight. In Act 4, he says, He has no need for eyes, because when he had them, he could not see clearly. I have no way, and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw. And here is Lillian Kavanagh from Santa Sabina School in Sutton. She has some ideas on approaching a typical question on King Lear. Regardless of which of the questions you choose to answer on the day, it will involve a discussion to some level on the main plot and the subplot in King Lear. So candidates need to know both of these very well. The main plot, as you know, involves Lear and his daughters, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia. The subplot involves Gloucester and his two sons, Edmund and Edgar. The two plots have their own separate storyline, but they also have a number of similarities. This use of a parallel plot by Shakespeare is a highly effective device in the play. It emphasises Shakespeare's themes and develops the main characters by comparison and contrast. There are parallels in theme, characters, actions in both of the plots. A major similarity in the two is that both Lear and Gloucester have faults and these faults or flaws of character help to cause their suffering. However, it is through their suffering that each character learns the truth. Each father is blind to the truth and credulously believes and is fooled by his offspring. This leaves each father at the mercy of an unscrupulous son or daughter. Both characters, Lear and Gloucester, are easily deceived and are blind to the truth. 
Both characters are only redeemed following a period of suffering. Lear's blindness manifests itself as an inability to recognise truth, an inability to distinguish between appearance and reality. He is unable to distinguish between the reality of Cordelia's love and the appearance of love from Goneril and Regan at an age when he should have had more wisdom. He is also blind to the loyalty of Kent and dismisses his advice in relation to Cordelia's love. It is Kent who tries to point out to Lear the folly of his decision. See better, Lear, thou dost evil. Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least. Lear foolishly divides his kingdom on the basis of flattery. He banishes his favourite and sincerest daughter for her lack of flattery and banishes his most loyal subject, Kent, who tries to point out to Lear the folly of his decision. Like Lear, Gloucester is a credulous father. Gloucester foolishly is taken in by Edmund. His credulity is exploited by Edmund by pretending that Edgar wants to kill him. It is only later on in the play that Gloucester gains wisdom through losing his sight. Both Lear and Gloucester have ungrateful children who plot against them and bring them extreme suffering. Both have a good child who rescues and redeems through love. Both show tragic heroism and endurance in coping with their suffering. Both learn similar lessons regarding the meaning of life. Both also die in similar ways. They are both suspended by joy and grief. The lack of wisdom that Lear shows is highlighted ironically by the fool who reminds him of his folly in abdicating and the way in which he divided his kingdom. In Act 1, Scene 4, he suggests to the disguised Kent that he will make a good fool if he serves a master like Lear who has come down in the world and he offers Kent his coxcomb, the fool's cap. And he advises Lear in this scene to trust nobody. During this scene, it is the fool who recognises the reality of the situation. The fool is not blind like Lear. He intimates that Lear has acted like a fool. All thy other titles thou hast given away. He tells Lear, Thou hast little wit in thy bald crown when thou gavest thy golden one away. He has not been blind to the monstrous behaviour of Goneril and Regan when he says, the hedge sparrow fed the cuckoo so long that it had its head bit off by its young. The fool points out in Act 3, Scene 6 that Lear's mistake was to trust in gratitude that did not exist. He is mad who trusts in the tameness of a wolf, a horse's health, a boy's love or a whore's oath. In the same way that King Lear gains insight into himself and his life, through suffering in the main plot, Gloucester is only able to see his situation as it really is when he is physically blinded. As he says in Act 4, Scene 1, I stumbled when I saw. Lear and Gloucester both gain knowledge of their worlds at the expense of great personal suffering. Regardless of which question you choose to answer in the exam, it is vital that you read the question very carefully and make sure that you address the question in your answer. Don't wander off the point. You will need also well-chosen quotations or reference to illustrate the points you make and to support your opinion.
and now on to our King Lear quiz. And we have representatives from each of our participating schools. From Moyne, we have Carla Madden. From St. Mel's, we have Brian Murphy. From Carrigallon, we have Paula McLean. And Sarah Jane Dempsey from Skullwira. Now, I'm going to ask each one of you a question individually. And uh, you can win up to two points for each of these questions. Let's start with Carla. Listen to this. This night, when in the Cudron Bearwood couch, the lion and the belly-pinched wolf keep their fur dry, unbonneted he runs and bids what will take off. Who is being described and by whom? Uh, Leo is being described by a gentleman. Well done. That's two points. And now, Brian, have a listen to this. And now, shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rectundity of the world. Crack nature's mold. Who's speaking and to what? Uh, Lear speaking to the storm. Well done. Well done indeed. Another two points. Now, Orla, have a listen to this one. I am a man. Now, who was speaking there? And can you name any of the other characters who were present? Um, Lear was speaking, and the Fool and Kent were there. Well done, you got them all. <laughs> Two points. And now it's Sarah Jane from Skullwira. Have a listen to this. Seek out the traitor Gloucester. I'm alone. Hang him instantly. Clear out his eyes. Leave him to my displeasure. Now, all you have to do is name two of the characters in that scene. Goneril and Regan. Well done. You could also have said Cornwall. Two points there. So we're level pegging. Two points all, and we're going into the quickfire round. That means got your fingers on the buzzers, and away we go. When Kent challenges Oswald to fight, how is he punished for it? And that was Sarah Jane from Skullwira. He's put in the stocks. Well done. Next one. How will Kent spend the day while he's in the stocks? That was Carla from uh, from Moyne. Sorry. Um, he'll whistle and uh, sleep for the rest. That's right. Well, the other way round, but I'll let you have that one. Yes, well done. Sometimes I'll sleep, the rest I'll whistle. Next question. While he's in the stocks, Kent reads a letter. Who wrote it? And that was very fast from Sarah Jane in Skullwira. Cordelia. Cordelia, correct. <laughs> How does Edgar disguise himself? And that was Sarah Jane again, flying it. Tom of Bedlam. That's right, as a Bedlam bigger, Tom. <laughs> this is the last question. Where does Leah go during the storm? That was Carla from Moyne. He goes onto the heath. Out onto the heath, well done. <laughs> And at the end of that round, it's Sarah Jane from Skullwira. Well done. <laughs> so well done to Skullwira. Now, next week we brings us to our final Lear in Longford, and we're going to be looking at the conclusion of the play, where all the storylines finally come together in what is a most magnificent final act, the uh, Act 5, Scene 3. In that, the students from Skullwira will be reading all the roles. In the meantime, thank you, and join me again next week.
That was Lear in Longford. The production team was Catherine Brennan, Angus McAnally, Siobhan Mannion and Kevin Reynolds. On sound were Tony Lyons and Eddie O'Halloran. And our special thanks to the teachers, staff and students of St Mel's College and Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim and Moyne Community School. Yours in the ranks of death. Oh, Colonel, you are not worth the dust which the road wind blows in your face. What have you done? The desert needs rain, like a town needs a name. I need your love. Search every acre in the high-grown field and bring him to our eyes. Like a drifter needs rain, hot moon. I need your love. Adultery, thou shalt not die. Die for adultery, no. Get thee glass-eyed. For as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. Like a rhythm unbroken, like drums in the night, like sweet soul music, like sunlight. Need your love. When time shall serve, let but the herald cry, and I'll appear again. Coming home, and you don't know where you be. For my state stands on me to defend, not to debate. He and his daughter Tane 